0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MUSC's Science Never Sleeps podcast. Many of our listeners may have seen a label on their prescription medications that says, Do not take with grapefruit. That label is the result of the discovery of a compound in grapefruit that alters the absorption of certain medications. This discovery was made in 1996 by David Edwards and today's guest, Dr. Patrick Wooster. Dr. Wooster is Professor and Chair of Drug Discovery and Biomedical Sciences at MUSC's College of Pharmacy. Additionally, he is a South Carolina Smart State Endowed Chair in Drug Discovery, Director of MUSC's Drug Discovery Corps, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, and is an inductee in the American Chemical Society's Medicinal Chemistry Hall of Fame. Welcome, Dr. Wooster.
1: Thanks, I'm really happy to be here.
0: I'm happy to have you here. In the past year, we have seen new vaccines being fast-tracked to combat the COVID pandemic and a push in academic and industry labs to find new therapeutics to treat people suffering from the COVID-19 virus. And just recently, the FDA has approved a new Alzheimer's drug, a decision surrounded by much controversy and debate, even among scientists and clinicians. Dr. Worcester, there is a lot of confusion about the process of drug discovery. So let's begin with insight into the inner workings of drug discovery. How do pharmaceutical companies or academic laboratories identify a substance or chemical structure that is eventually developed into a drug?
1: Well, drug discovery is a very long and involved process. Uh, Most companies start by identifying a disease state that they're interested in working on, and a specific biological target that goes along with that. Uh, The first thing they would do is validate the target to make sure that engaging it with a drug would actually have the effect that they want it to have.
0: How do you validate a target?
1: Uh, It's done biochemically. They um, usually will isolate, say it's an enzyme, they'll isolate the enzyme, make sure that the drug binds properly. Mm, And then they look at it in cells to determine if it actually has an effect on the biological system that would be analogous to getting rid of that particular protein. So they're pretty thorough about that. Then they start the chemistry process, uh, which is done a number of different ways. Um, A lot of companies do high-throughput screening where they'll robotically assay up to a million compounds.
0: What's an assay?
1: An assay is just, a, it's a simulation of the process you're trying to uh, interrupt. So again, with an enzyme, it would be an enzyme uh, reaction that you monitored the progress of. And if you put your drug in, then, then the product of that should re- be reduced. Okay. So they'll look at a million compounds, uh, and they have the money and the people and the robots to do that kind of work. Um, eventually they'll identify, uh, a number of different chemotypes, different chemical scaffolds or structures that they want to, uh, manipulate. Um, and a, a chemistry program will make on average probably about 10,000 compounds that they want to look at. Um, they have, again, a lot of people that can work on this. Um, and in fact, the ratio of, uh, of drugs that are made compounds that are made to those that actually become a drug is about ten thousand to one Wow, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of failure involved with <laughs> with drug discovery but the the end product is is well worth it so eventually they'll find something uh, that they want to test in cells they'll look at the cellular effects of the compounds, and usually they'll start narrowing down to a manageable number of compounds. Um, ultimately, they'll look at the pharmacology, uh, the effect, you know, the effects of the drug in cells and also in animals. There's a number of different animal studies that have to be done. Toxicology, uh, they look at how the drug is distributed in the body. Um, they look at birth defects, things like that. Does it cause, uh, you know? mutations for birth defects. Uh, They look at a number of different things. These are all mandated by the uh, FDA. So they end up doing animal studies in up to three different species. Uh, And that's just the first phase. Once they get to that end of that phase, they generally have maybe two or three compounds that they would call a clinical candidate. Then they have to file an investigational new drug application and have that approved. And that gives them permission to what they call first in humans. They can Mm -hmm. do their very first human study. The first human study, they generally will get volunteers. A lot of times they're students that uh, are healthy, and they just give them the drug, and they find out what the maximum tolerated dose is. Uh, it's a short-term thing, uh, and they're pretty sure it's not going to hurt anyone when they right. get to that point. Sometimes there's some little surprises and some side effects that don't occur in animals. Uh, from there, it can go into actual clinical trials in hospitals. They get larger and larger, and they spread out over the, uh, over the country. So there's really three phases to that. Uh, the first phase is just to show efficacy. Does mm-hmm. it actually work better than a placebo? Um, and then they get larger and larger. And in that phase, they're using patients that actually have the disease. Mm. So ultimately, they put all this data together. It's a tremendous amount of data that they're required to have. They keep everything, uh, all the lab notebooks, all the documents, everything they keep. And then they submit that to the FDA for approval. So it's a very long process
0: indeed it is let me ask you something listening to what you've just offered us i'm wondering there was a time i presume that they didn't follow this process because there were several drugs i think long ago maybe the 50s where a tremendous number of birth defects for women who were suffering from i don't know maybe it was um um, morning sickness sickness. Mm -hmm. and so tell me has have things changed that much or was that was just a sorry side effect they didn't know about. I'm curious.
1: Well, the the initial uh, example of that was the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Before that, there was no control, and you these snake oil salesmen. Right. And so there was a product that was a weight loss product that actually contained tapeworms. <gasps> so it worked. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but it it was it was effective, but it wasn't safe. So the Pure Food and Drug Act said it has has to be safe and effective. And from there, it's really been modified a number of times. Uh, The example you're thinking of was the thalidomide crisis. Mm -hmm. And there was actually, uh, they distributed this drug uh, in England, and it caused uh, these birth defects Uh, where they had limbs that didn't develop. Uh, There was a woman at the FDA in this country who would not allow that. And this is before she knew anything about what had happened. She did not allow that to be tested in the United States. So those defects were, were only in England.
0: So we have a woman to thank for that. We
1: do, yes. And then uh, there was a, a thing a few years ago with the Merck Pharmaceutical Company where they had some um, they had some anti-inflammatory agents that they made, and they caused some issues with a cha- an ion channel in your heart that's necessary for proper function of your heart. And uh, they knew about this, but they marketed the drug anyway. So they, they were fined a tremendous amount of money for that. And now they, th- this this channel is called the HERG channel, and they're all now required to test every drug against HERG. So these things, you know, over time they will, they will uh, change the regulations. It's gotten more and more strict to the point where uh, the public can be pretty sure that they're what they're getting is safe.
0: And those things I wanna to talk to you about in depth in mm-hmm. a little bit, especially as it relates to the COVID uh, vaccine that came on the market. So, well, not even it's not even on the market, it's actually for emergency use, but we'll talk about that. Right. So um, I guess my question to you is because this process is so long and because it takes so much manpower and high tech, um, is that the reason? drugs cost so much?
1: Well, there's multiple reasons for that. It is the, it is the time involved. Uh, I mean, think of all the people beyond science that are also involved in this. So uh, a drug development program on average now takes about 10 years. Now, remember that they only have a patent that lasts 17 years. Right. So if it takes 10 years, you've got seven years left to make your money back. Uh, so that's an important uh, amount of time. Also, right now, the current average expenditure is about two point six billion dollars for to develop for, a drug. for one drug, and the reason for that is they have lots of different programs going, and they sometimes have more than one candidate within one program, and they don't always make it. Sometimes they'll get into later human studies and they'll find something that uh, is can't be tolerated or. It's not as effective as they thought it was in earlier studies, so those fail. But they've spent a lot of money on those, so the pharmaceutical companies really need what they call a blockbuster drug. Mm-hmm. So a good example of that is Lipitor, mm-hmm. uh, that paid for a lot of failed uh, uh, drug you know drug discovery campaigns that they had at the, uh, the company was Park Davis at the time. Now it's Pfizer. Uh, so that's how they do it. Then once they get something good and it goes on the market, uh, they have to make their money back. So, the, you know, the patients don't understand this, and drug prices have gone up dramatically. But the drug companies put a lot of their profits back into discovery. So, uh, I mean, obviously they're in this to make money, but they also want to keep funding what they're doing.
0: And and that brings a question to my mind that um, they – they're looking for the blockbuster to recoup for all those other failed uh, drug development opportunities but also um, is this fair to say that they they mostly focus on drugs for a large population not the drug for the the disease that is so horrific but in very small parts of the population, is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you have to remember that the motivation of a company is is to make a profit. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's you're just working in a in an area where you should be somewhat altruistic. So, uh, a good example, um, I, I saw a pharma executive one time who said that all of the drug discovery and development machinery in the world is in the northern hemisphere. And all the really nasty diseases are in the southern hemisphere, yeah. where people make no money, so they don't go after those diseases because there's no market. And it sounds callous, but I mean it's it's a corporate philosophy. Uh, so some companies now have started programs almost like what when a lawyer does pro bono work, mm-hmm. uh, where they um, will pick a, either a rare disease or uh, say a tropical infection, parasitic infection, something like that, and they'll have a program in that. Well, is
0: this where, is this possibly where partnerships between, um, such as MUSC's academic, uh, medical center and your drug discovery lab and your core, is that where partnerships begin that will help those people who, who won't normally get any kind of help at all?
1: Yeah, that's, that's really a great question. Uh, because, uh, Big Pharma now, they they keep saying that they're target-rich and pipeline-poor, which means they have lots of things they want to work on, and they don't have as many drugs coming through their pipeline as they would like. So they've now begun, in the past five years, I'd say it's really accelerated, to make partnerships with academic institutions, and that's how they're getting their pipeline drugs. In, in academics, we talk about what we call the chasm of death, which is you can develop a drug up to a certain point. Uh, usually it's in somewhere in the animal studies range where you can afford that. But universities can't pay $2.6 billion for something. So we get to that point and we used to be stuck because the drug company wanted it farther along before they would Oh, would pick invest. it up and develop it. Okay. So now they've sort of uh, covered that over. Uh, companies are more willing to invest in things that are earlier in the process. And also a lot of academics have started their own companies. Uh, we've had some successful companies from MUSC. And generally the end point for those companies is a large company will, will see what they're doing and buy it. And so that's, that's a way that academics get over that chasm of death.
0: Is there also – do do you have any experience with uh, venture capitalists or angel investors in drug discovery? Or is that really – would be a very small population?
1: No, I think anyone who gets into the entrepreneurial part of science from an academic institution is going to be looking for for angel investors and venture capitalists. And there are programs – Where you can go and meet these people is they have what they call speed dating. Right. You you meet very quickly, meet all of these people that have money to invest. And you have to give them an elevator pitch of what what you're working on. And if they like it, they'll invest in it. Some companies and some venture capitalists will invest very early. Others want things that are more developed. Mm. Uh, But there is money out there if you have a good – idea and if you have made some progress it's it's available
0: you are kind of a renaissance man in the world of medical chemistry you don't limit yourself to one disease target what types of drug discovery research do you do in your lab
1: well the the beauty of chemistry is that no matter what biological system you're working on chemistry is chemistry so we have, uh, and I'm, we'll talk about the Drug Discovery core in a minute, but we have a library of compounds that we can mine for a number of different uh, projects. So in my lab, um, our newest project is one that Catherine's actually working on now. We're looking for small molecules that can activate the immune system to attack and kill cancer cells. And this is a new project that we've just started with, and we've gotten some leads from our library that we have on wow. campus. Um, I've done some work on uh, sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. We have some compounds that cause uh, your body to start making fetal hemoglobin again, which you stop making when you're six months old. So uh, that alleviates the problem because the fetal form doesn't have the mutation that causes sickle cell. Um, we have a, a chemo prevention project where we're looking for compounds that inhibit an enzyme that makes reactive oxygen species that can cause cancer. Uh, we've made some progress there. We've actually uh, one of our more recent projects we've actually found some compounds that that prevent inflammation and bone loss in periodontal disease. So we've actually started working with the College of Dentistry and uh we've found some ways to uh, to prevent that problem. and, you know, Half of the world's population has some form of gingivitis or periodontal. That's a huge market. Also, one of the first uh, collaborations between our two colleges. So I think that's uh, wonderful. Shows the interdisciplinary nature of how we do things around here.
0: And exactly, which is why we are the premier academic health center in the state of South Carolina. Um, no argument there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it takes a while for a drug to actually get to a place where it can be marketed. Before the COVID pandemic, the vaccine holding the record for uh, fastest development was the mumps vaccine, which took four years to develop. It is amazing that that record was beaten with the development of the vaccines to combat COVID. How were these vaccines rolled out so quickly while meeting safety and efficacy regulations?
1: It's, it's actually an interesting story. And I, I actually did a little bit of reading on this just to make sure I had my facts straight. But um, The first thing that happened was the government mobilized a tremendous amount of money. Uh, They redirected it from other uh, uh, programs so that they could uh, attack this pandemic. Once it became a pandemic, it was clear that we had to work very quickly. Uh, The other thing that helped was the technology that they used to make the vaccine already existed. They were working on other viruses. And uh, they just adapted it to uh, work with, uh, with COVID-19. Um, they've been working, as I said, on other viruses. So a lot of that information transferred over. Uh, one of the big factors was when you do human clinical studies, it takes a long time to enroll patients. Mm-hmm. We had so many patients that it went very quickly. And uh, so they had a nice group of patients already. And I guess the biggest factor was luck because things worked out they don't always work out perfectly right. but in this case we had a lot of a lot of things work out uh, quickly
0: can i ask a question mm-hmm. um and this is of course out of egg ignorance because i'm a i'm a business person not a scientist but um you said that they had other viruses they were working on and they were able Perhaps then to use that material for the COVID. So, how, how do you know you can use that material? Uh, uh, tell me about
1: that. Well, the, the way the vaccine works for COVID 19 is it's just a piece of messenger RNA. So, what messenger RNA does is it tells your cell, here's a protein I want you to make, and then it, it reads that and makes the protein. So uh, what, what they did was they made messenger RNA that corresponds to that little spike uh-huh. that's on the outside of the virus you see in the pictures. Um, and so your body makes the spike protein, which is harmless, but it grows antibodies because it's identified as a foreign substance. So you make antibodies to this spike protein, and then when you get the virus, it binds to the spike protein that's on the virus and prevents it from replicating.
0: Can you speak a little more to that? Because, as you know, there are many folks who are hesitant to get the vaccine, and one of the arguments that I hear is, "Well, it's going to, um, it's going to change my chemistry, if you will, in my mm-hmm. body." Can you talk to these folks about, you know, what what this actually does and and what not to worry about?
1: First of all, messenger RNA. Uh, doesn't matter what the sequence is when you have it in your body it gets used or degraded uh, so the worst that could happen is you would make a protein that you don't normally have it can incorporate into your DNA so it's not it's not a danger there there was even some rumors going around that the government was putting little tracking devices in. I'd, right. I'd love to see the technology where you can get a transistor through a 18 gauge needle but you know we'll we'll see if that's true or not but I mean those things It's just sensationalism, and and, uh, there's no basis to any of that. Right. I think that, I mean, we've had, what, 160 million people have had this now. Uh, I think that's probably a big enough clinical Clinical study study. to show that it's safe and effective.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, Emory University in Atlanta revealed promising data from a Phase two clinical trial for their antiviral uh, use in COVID patients in March. Now we see a new virus called the monkey virus. With the unpredictability of diseases that cross boundaries from animal to human, do you, do you think we will still, still see a push in development of antiviral drugs?
1: Yeah, I think we'll see more of that because, yeah, you know, the viruses that exist today have seem to be able to mutate much faster than, uh, than other viruses. Well, for polio, for example, we've used the same vaccine for polio for 70 years, uh, or however long it's been. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the COVID virus has already mutated. Right. It's mutated that spike protein, and luckily, the antibody still binds. But it could ultimately make a variant that doesn't. Um, it's like the flu. We get a flu vaccine every year. It's always a little different because of which strain might be out there so I think there's going to be a lot more research. The other reason I think that's true, uh, if you're familiar with the product Harvoni that they talk about at night on the news a lot that's actually a cure for a viral infection, hepatitis C
0: Mm, Yeah, Mm -hmm. and
1: that's the first time anyone has ever been able to say we can wipe this virus out completely. Uh, You can't do that with HIV Uh, and HIV is notorious for mutating so Patients take this cocktail of right. several drugs, and if they get below therapeutic levels, there's a danger of mutation. Uh, so it's it's this Harvoni product is, is fabulous.
0: And how uh, how long did it take to get that to market?
1: That was probably uh, probably in the seven to ten year range. Wow, uh, because uh, that that was not as urgent as COVID. Um, so, it, it, I mean, it was something that needed to be done because there's a lot of people that have hepatitis C and don't even know it. Right. So it also drew attention to the disease. So I think we're going to see a lot more things like this. And I think people are going to be looking now for agents that can actually cure a viral infection um, rather than just prevent replication. And then the patient has to kind of tough it out until yeah. it's over.
0: And that's just fascinating. Tell me about the Drug Discovery Corps at MUSC. Well, I
1: think the Drug Discovery Corps is kind of a hidden gem at MUSC. We've we've been around, but we've really only formalized things in the past couple of years. Uh, I I took over as director about two years ago. And uh, we have uh, a a library of 130,000 compounds. And 100,000 of these were donated by a pharmaceutical company, Aterna mm-hmm. They have a presence here in Charleston. Uh, they wanted to get out of the early discovery uh, phase and concentrate on some clinical things they had going on. So they donated to us their library. And we have these compounds plated out in uh, 96 well plates, which we use for assays. And so you can assay 96 different preparations in one plate. Uh, so, this is available now to faculty uh, at MUSC, it's available to people from the outside. There's a little cost involved, but it's much cheaper than doing it externally somewhere. Uh, and we're starting to get people coming in with their biological system and saying, you know, this is a target, can we, can we find a drug? So we have about, I think, 11 or 12 ongoing projects in the, right now on the drug discovery and it's still pretty early. We do synthetic chemistry, so if you have a compound you're interested in and you need a lot of it, we can scale it up and make it. We can make derivatives, do what they call hit-to-lead optimization, where you change the structure and see how that affects the activity. Ultimately, that's how they get to their clinical candidate uh, in uh, in industry. Um, We also have some great imaging instruments. Uh, We have quality control instruments. Uh, it's actually a very well-equipped uh, drug discovery center for for a university. Sounds
0: like a state-of-the-art uh, facility.
1: It is. Most of the equipment that we have is is pretty new. Uh, we've also now had three companies that have spun off from uh, just in the past two years from uh, from our library. So it's really a goldmine because nobody else has access to these compounds except this university and those people from the outside that we. We contract with,
0: and so we're the only academic institution in the state that actually has that something of this nature, which is really a wonderful thing. As you've been in your career and with all your accolades, has there been any surprise for you um, in regard to medicinal chemistry? Um, I I recall hearing uh, one scientist tell me, you know, that there's that aha moment when you're working on something, and you have one goal in mind. But lo and behold, it didn't work for that, but it works for this. Mm-hmm. How, does that, how does that work in your world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's – it's not really a surprise, but it is kind of unexpected when you find out that uh, some – you can move into a different area. And again, it's because of chemistry. Um, we, made, we made some compounds uh, for cancer, and those were the compounds that we found would work in sickle cell disease. And the reason is it was a similar target, but it had a different function. So we've moved from one thing to another. If you would told me five years ago I was going to be working on periodontal disease, I would have laughed. But it's just how it goes. You follow the research and Actually, I remember when I the first time I made a compound, it worked. I was pretty surprised. <laughs> I didn't realize I didn't realize that that's actually what it did. But uh, uh, you know, we've we've had a lot of surprises along the way, and and we've turned in a lot of different directions. Uh, you have to be pretty nimble when you're a scientist in drug discovery.
0: Exactly, and you have to really be. I, I would also think very creative, and pretty dang smart too.
1: Well, you just have to keep your eyes open. You know, Einstein said a genius is the master of the obvious. (laughs) I'm not a genius because not everything is obvious to me, but uh, you you just keep your eyes open and you notice. So the sickle cell target being similar to the the cancer target was a way that we got into that. And that then blossomed into a three-year grant from the Doris Duke Foundation. So uh, you just keep your eyes open. Sometimes things fall into your lap.
0: Yeah. Um, serendipity um, tell me something how many what's projected number of medicinal chemists uh, coming out of our uh, great institutions across the country that could fulfill the type of work that you do now because it sounds like there's going to be a big need going forth in the future well it's
1: interesting because um the big companies um at one time, a lot of the big companies are run by MBAs now. Mm-hmm. There's not a scientist sitting in that chair, uh, which is fine. But, they, you know, a lot of their decisions tend to be um, based on finance. So one of the things they decided to do, uh, this has been about 10 or 15 years ago, was we can contract out our chemistry to uh, India and China. And they did that. And they could, at that time, they could get three medicinal chemists in India for the price of one here. Mm-hmm. So it was a good move financially. Mm-hmm. But they found that what was missing was the creativity, that um, they were making compounds but not necessarily looking at the results and figuring out what needed to be done next. And so at that time, a lot of medicinal chemists um w- they call it being downsized, but actually they just lost their jobs. They just said, we're not doing a med chem anymore, and they, they let, let all those people go. Wow. So that happened to one of my former students, and he's now president of a drug company in China. What? Wow. So th- what happened with the American chemists is they, um, they went into academia, and they're doing fantastic. And the, the benefit is that, you know, as an academic, I was not trained to do things like industrial people do. And these people come out. They know what the process is. They know what needs to be done. They know all the pitfalls. And so there are places that have fantastic drug discovery uh, operations. Vanderbilt is one. Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Ohio State. There's a number of places where they snapped up some of these chemists that came out of industry. Now industry is saying we better hire some people ah, back. <laughs>
0: let's partner. Right.
1: Yeah. So I don't know how many uh, are out there. Um, there's, I mean, the, the American Chemical Society has an organization for young medicinal mm-hmm. chemists, and it's pretty popular. Uh, the big companies tend to go to the big universities, and they'll hire uh, an organic chemist and, you know, train them to do the biological part. Um, and then, you know, there's institutions like ours. I believe that the, the education of a scientist should be more broad-based, mm-hmm. so my students do both things. Uh, And I think they're starting to realize that that's a good way to go as well. Um,
0: Yeah, because, uh, you know, this is why uh, folks, many folks back in the day would start out with a a liberal arts education, because it it helps you to think. And then you get into your specialty where you already have been trained to think so broadly about big things, and that's how you become so creative in your particular field. Mm -hmm. I I think that's really important. You're absolutely right. so let me ask you this question. Um, why is chemistry so hard? <laughs> <laughs>
1: chemistry is... You
0: know, they call it the, the, the fail uh, course. In, in, in undergraduate school, you yeah, take that, chemistry and you fail, then, then bye.
1: Yeah, we had a professor when I was in school. He was the make or break for getting in med school. So I know exactly what you're talking about. It has to do with aptitude um, and how you approach it. Um, my personal story is that, um, I took, uh, first semester organic and I was completely lost and I don't know why, but I was sitting studying for the last exam and it just sort of all came together. No kidding. And, uh, I did, I got the highest grade in the class and there were like 300 people in a big university and it shocked me. I said, I, I put it together and I understand, you know, how all these things interact so I think it has to do with aptitude. It's not that I'm any smarter than anybody else. I just have the aptitude for it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you put me in a calculus class, it's a whole different thing. Um, but I think that's what it is. And, and you know, the most successful medicinal chemists that I know are people who it's almost like their hobby. They, mm-hmm. would, they mm-hmm. would rather be doing that. I know one person in Minnesota who is uh, – He's like 86, 87. He still goes in every day because it's really his hobby. I also, it's kind of like cooking for me. I really enjoyed working in the lab. But while I was in pharmacy school, I worked in a lab uh, as an undergraduate and uh, I really got hooked on it. It's it's really amazing to, you can't even see what's happening. And, right. and uh, you've made these transformations. And so uh, well, that, that's, that's how I got hooked on it.
0: Glad to know about that. So uh, let me ask you this question. I go to Europe frequently, and it always surprises me that in Europe there are drugs I can get over-the-counter that are only available here by prescription and vice versa. Mm. I remember it, this was many years ago, but I would take um, for my sinuses a over-the-counter medicine, which now is not. But at that time it was over-the-counter, and I remember uh, going to the doctor in Holland at the time, and he said, where did you get this drug? Like it was something terribly illegal. Yeah. And I said, I got it at the grocery store. What, why such a difference between our countries as far as how they view uh, these medicines?
1: Well, every country has their version of the FDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, European Union has one, and then all the member com- uh, countries have their own. Uh, and they just have differing opinions on what things should be available and what aren't. I think in some cases in the U.S. they're somewhat restrictive um, Antibiotics is a good example, but they're trying to prevent the overuse of antibiotics because it leads to resistance strain. So it makes sense to me. But I was in Russia and got an infection and uh, uh, needed penicillin, and I had to go in and figure out how to get it. (laughs) And they just gave it to me. I mean, there was no doctor involved. Wow. So in Russia, they have a different attitude towards that. Um, It just has to do with the the governing organizations and and how they view things.
0: It's not some sort of... um, what I thought at the time was that our FDA was perhaps much more stringent than other countries. Um, do 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 they talk to each other, these these governing bodies, especially with the COVID-19? I'm very curious about that then.
1: Yeah, they, they do. And, uh, um, you know, it depends on their situation. For example, this Emory drug that we were just talking about, they've already licensed that for emergency use in India because they had this huge problem with COVID oh. there. Um, so, yeah, but they talk to each other, and when when we file patents for a new technology and drug discovery and new molecules or whatever, uh, generally, we will file an international patent organization and there's an organization that oversees all the patents in in the world basically mm. and and it it gets kind of complicated because At some point, you have to decide what countries you want to market in. Right. So nobody is going to pick a country like uh, the Congo or you know someplace like that because of the yeah. So you pick Germany, Japan, European Union countries, Australia, and then you have a process in each one of those countries. So it gets to be very expensive and very complicated. There's milestone payments you have to meet. Uh, You have to renew every year. So they have people in pharmaceutical industry. That's all they do is take care of those, those uh, patent milestones and, and preparing things. But through that process, you can see what the, what the regulations are in, in uh, different countries.
0: So you become very familiar with that. So you, what you just stated, though, also goes back to what we talked about earlier. Those countries who have no infrastructure or good, strong governmental um, you know, um, compliance going on They continue to suffer. And we're a global economy. So at some point in time, for those who are not able to get the kind of um, drugs that we have available to us here, uh, eventually it's going to hurt us anyhow, right? I mean, that's what happened with COVID. People travel. Mm -hmm. People go exotic places, and then they come back with an illness Um, Luckily, we have great people that uh, make some quick vaccines. But, I mean, there's something kind of unsettling about this that only the wealthy countries have access to. What are your thoughts? I
1: I agree with you. And, I I mean, in my lab, we've worked on a number of uh, what you would call third-world diseases. We, We used to have a program for African trypanosomiasis. It's not... Anything we get in the northern hemisphere, but it kills about five hundred thousand people a year. <laughs> malaria kills about two million people a year, but we don't get malaria in the United States. Right. Uh, we will as global warming continues. So yeah, I mean we need to be more aware of what's going on there. Um, but you know we, we had have programs in malaria, and if you if you go to these places and look at at the people, it's it just breaks your heart because mm-hmm. they have. No means to right. You know the way they, they combat trypanosomiasis in, in African countries in the rural areas is they they soak uh, cloth in DDT and ah. hang it in their window, and that keeps the, the mosquitoes out or whatever oh the bug is. In this in this case, it's a tsetse fly, but they they keep the bugs away. So they're they're more doing vector control, mm-hmm. killing the bug rather than you know trying to cure the disease.
0: What do you see as the future of, well, actually, I'd love to bring your student in. Catherine, would you would you have a moment to talk with us? I'd like to know from the standpoint of a student, A, why did you choose um, medicinal chemistry to, um, to study? And what do you see as the future? What are you hoping to uh, be your career uh, highlights from um, your study?
2: What is the draw to medicinal chemistry? Yeah. Um, so I had a choice to, to just pursue chemistry or to do um, more of a medicinal chemistry program with Dr. Wooster. And um, with a traditional just chemistry program, you're just synthesizing compounds. You don't get the the cool side where we actually get to test our compounds like in a biological assay. Um, that really, it, it fuels the creativity. Mm. So to me, it's... Design, um, so I mean, you're really—it's—it's it's almost like art. You're designing your compounds um, to a target, and then eventually you get to see the effect of that design that could potentially help someone. Um, so one of our projects um, we're focusing on a rare, rare disease, a pediatric disease, neuroblastoma, which doesn't get a lot of attention because it is rare, but it's, it's fatal. Yeah, it's—it's mm. it's terrible and. Um, we've come a long way in therapeutics for these children, but um, it's still, I mean, the current um, treatment, these kids have to have a, a morphine infusion with the drug because wow. it's its just so painful. And so that's one of, you know, the, the things that we're working on is trying to um, maybe develop something that can help improve efficacy of therapeutics that are already on the market. So for me, it's your creativity but also the inspiration of like the potential patients that you can help
0: glad we have you here for sure and i love the fact Catherine is Catherine is with us because she too is um, very much interested in trying to communicate to the public about the science and what a difference it makes in folks lives so she's got a a lot of multitasking going on uh, to, to talking about neuroblastoma and again i'm just sharing my ignorance but Uh, I was reading something recently about the blood-brain barrier, and um, when you guys are developing these drugs, do you also develop the way that they will get into the body, or somebody else does that?
2: So that's something that we start early on in the process. Um, So there's five different parameters when you're developing a drug. Um, So solubility, um, blood-brain barrier penetration is one of those parameters that you can focus on. Um, so it's basically like kind of the pharmacology of how the drug is going to go through the body and where it's going to be taken up okay. um, in certain organ systems. Um, so you think about that process early on.
0: So you actually, you're not just designing drugs or biologics. You guys have to think about all, you, you go beyond just doing the chemistry, So that's really fascinating.
2: I I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you have to think about, like, the size of the compound. So that's important. Um, How many carbons are in there? How many oxygens are in there? How many hydrogens? Like, what are the hydrogen bonding? Um, How many hydrogen bond donors or acceptors you have in the compound? That's really going to impact where your drug goes and how effective it's going to be. So you have to think about that early on because you also, to market and develop later, like how is, is it going to be an IV administration or is it going to be, have um, oral bioavailability? So those are different things that we have to. And
0: that's a, how, how long is the program? That you, your, your program of study, how many years? Is that a four year, a three, four year?
2: I'm, I'm going into my fourth year, but um, we love what we do. So, and we, we do, Dr. Wooster, we do two full years of courses. Leading up to it, so um, there's a lot of drug discovery, and Dr. Wooster um, he organizes all of the courses for us, and so and we do a lot of discussion weekly in lab meeting. Um, so it's it's a constant process, but we love it. So
0: I'm glad. To, I'm so glad to hear that. It, it, you're right. It's not just having a, um, uh, a a certain ability to do this stuff, as you noted, Catherine. It's that um, it's that creativity. It's the artistic part of it that probably brings forth the most success, I would guess. Um, as you said, you could do chemistry, but this takes you to a higher level altogether and it does require um, a little a little something else to, to, to get to where you have a product that's gonna help people. So well
2: um, we have a good PI. So not many people okay. can say that, you know, every time I get data I'll run down to his office and kind of barge in and say, look what I got and I get really excited and, you know, it keeps the keeps the ball rolling. Absolutely. So, um, not, not many students can say that they're able to do that with their PI. So. Absolutely
0: agreed. He's, You're right. I've known Dr. Wooster actually for a while and um, he's a very generous soul on top of really enjoying his work. Also has a great sense of humor yeah, as I recall. We love that.
2: We have <laughs> lots of jokes in lab meeting.
0: So I want to thank you both so very much. Dr. Wooster, our um, actually I want to say it again because it's just too much fun a fellow of the royal society of chemistry and an quite. inductee into the american <laughs> chemistry society's medicinal chemistry hall of fame Th- those are big accolades and and catherine you're quite lucky to be in in this person's um lab working I with am. such a prestigious person um but I, I want to thank you guys so much for a wonderful, entertaining, and informative conversation today. And, and again, it speaks to the opportunities at MUSC because we are an academic health center. And we get our students involved in really great work to go out into the world and to make a difference. And that is so important. And um, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Ver- there's, there's so much more I'd love to speak with you about, but time is running out. So thank you both so very much. Appreciate it. Thanks and
1: for the opportunity.
0: You're very welcome. And to our listeners, join us again for another Science Never Sleeps podcast. And stay safe and healthy.